Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say, life is better in flip-flops. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on vacation, put your feet up and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise resort, riverboat and adventure vacations. So you can kiss who you want to kiss without a care in the world. You've never felt relaxation like this. Discover Olivia for yourself at olivia.com or through the link in our show notes and save $100 on your next Olivia booking when you use promo code CRUISING. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah with an important message for our 21 plus listeners. Three out of four women in the U.S. have access to legal cannabis, and most of them have a lot of questions. How to Do the Pot is an award-winning weekly podcast helping you dabble in weed and feel confident about cannabis for health, well-being, and for fun. How to Do the Pot shares practical tips and stories from women who have turned to cannabis to help with stress, sleep, and pain relief. If you've got questions about microdosing cannabis, the best weed for sex, or how cannabis can help you be a more patient parent, host Ellen Scanlon has you covered, along with knowledgeable, trusted experts. To hear how other women are exploring cannabis and have all of your questions answered, listen to How to Do the Pot wherever you get your podcasts. I've always felt different, but I didn't know how to identify as that. At 20 years old, Tara Lynn Fox saw herself for the first time. It was New Orleans, the early 1980s. I remember going to this party, and this guy, he was a makeup artist for a local musician here. And I was just sitting in the corner, just like watching everybody have fun. I was just, you know, and he said, come here, I want to show you something. And so he took me to his restroom. And he sat me on the toilet and he did my makeup and he put me in the mirror and I just started crying. I just started absolutely bawling because I saw who I was at that time. And that was the takeoff from there. I said, I know I found my authentic self when I saw myself in that mirror. After that fateful experience with the makeup artist, Terrell began performing in gay clubs throughout the city. These shows were often marketed as drag, but for Terrell, it was something else. You know, it's really hard to say because I don't think I ever did drag. I think I just, I was just myself, yeah, because I never considered myself to be a drag queen. And because that, that just, ooh, that just did something to me, you know? You know, they would advertise us as men will be women. It was like just daggers, you know, like because I just felt an attack upon me of my character because that's not who I identified as, but I didn't know how to express who I was at that time. Terrell would go on to achieve amazing things in her career as a performer, including Miss Gay Louisiana, Miss Gay Mississippi, Miss Tennessee Continental, and Miss Continental Elite. But perhaps her most lasting impact has been in New Orleans gay nightlife. When, in the early 1990s, Terrell became one of the first Black performers in a bar called Oz, Bourbon Street's long-running gay dance club. This entertainer by the name of Lisa Bowman, she saw me, I don't remember where she saw me, I guess maybe in the streets somewhere, and she invited me to start working at the Oz. At the time, New Orleans gay nightlife was extremely segregated. So there was your black bars and there were your white bars. And your, most of your white bars were held in the French quarters. So that's where mostly all of your white clubs were. Including Oz. I remember when I started working 
at the eyes. It was very difficult because they thought I was like becoming white, which I couldn't understand. And they was calling me white chocolate and like, girl. And I was too white to be black and too black to be white. And it was very difficult for me to be accepted into the white bars. But eventually I did. And as time went on, you know, my black supporters started coming into the club. At first, Terrell's black friends faced discrimination at Oz. And they would tell me the problems. Well, listen, they had to get three IDs to get in and all this kind of stuff. So I had to speak up, you know, well, what's this all about? And so Oz became more and more integrated. Once we got that cleared up, they were allowing more Blacks to come in. And to my understanding today, the majority of the cast at the Oz now is predominantly Black. But we've only been talking about traditionally gay men's bars. What about the gay women? So what I understand and what I remember has always been a division between the lesbians and the gay men. Earlier in her career, Terrell had worked in the women's bars, too. Like Charlene's, the bar we covered last episode. You know, they would invite us over to do shows, but the majority of them would be your white lesbians. Um, You rarely saw, you know, um, a large number of black lesbians, you know. And I always questioned where were they, whether they socialized, you know, because um, I didn't see them out very often at all. Until the 1980s, when New Orleans opened its first black lesbian bar, Les Pierre's. Terrell will always remember what it was like to perform there. Les Pierre's was different than the club she was used to. I did a lot of Dinah Ross, I did Whitney Houston, I did Dionne Warwick, and Jody Watley at the time. But of course, when I worked for Lesbians, I was able to do anything by a black woman I was able to do, so I didn't have to just be um, confined to just doing those particular characters. And I remember just being loved there, you know. Um, I felt safe there, you know. I felt very um, the queen, you know, because they would make sure that when I get out the car, someone had my bags and, you know, things like that. So that was, yeah, I remember that. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This episode, we're taking you back in time to Les Pierre's. Yeah, ring the bell. Okay. It took us kind of a while to track down Juanita Pierre, one of the original owners of Les Pierre's. After lots of bounced emails and dead ends, we finally got a hold of her on her landline just a few weeks before our scheduled trip to New Orleans. She immediately agreed to talk with us, inviting us over to her house in uptown New Orleans. We had an address and a time, Sunday after Juanita got back from church, and just a hope that Juanita would be able to connect us with more people who could talk about Les Pierre's. Hi. Juanita? It is she. Juanita answers the door, cigarette in hand, and welcomes us into her home. <gasps> what is this gorgeous, gorgeous house? I'm blind. Okay. And the housekeeping don't come on weekends, so well, anything oh. gets a ray. 
It looks beautiful. Well, it looks amazing. It looks. No, it. Oh my gosh, you're kidding right now. It looks so beautiful. Juanita's home is relatively unassuming from the outside, but on the inside, it's sprawling and light-filled with high ceilings and art lining the walls, including framed posters from both Charlene's and Les Pierre's. It's gorgeous, though apparently not up to Juanita's usual standards. Because my partner died, so nothing's like it normally be. Of course, darling. Nothing, because I'm not a housewife. I ain't never been a housewife. Yeah. yeah. I ain't never wanted to be a housewife. Oh, no, me either. And I don't know how to do housework. Mm-hmm. I've never had to. We were together 45 years. Wow. And, so, and that was what she did? She did it all. Oh. All I had to do was go to work and pay the bills. We sat down at the kitchen table, Juanita with her cigarette and ashtray, Rachel and I with our recording equipment. But to start, Juanita had a question for us. Y'all gay? What? Are you all in the line? Yeah, we are. And with that out of the way, Juanita got to telling us everything there is to know about Leslie, her longtime partner, both in business and in life. She was an awesome woman. Anybody you talk to would tell you that Leslie was something else. Not that Juanita, but that Leslie was something else. All right. No, they didn't say that. Hey, Leslie. They still ain't going to say I'm all right. They say I wasn't nothing nice. Oh, and really? I, no. I don't believe that for a I really wasn't. Back in the day, you were not nice. Are you talking about yesterday? <laughs> I don't know. You, you've been nice for as long as I've been, so. <laughs> Whether or not Juanita is considered no, nice no. is still up for debate. But what's not up for debate is how much she loved Leslie. They were together for 45 years. That was the only mate that I spend the rest of my life with. And I don't see myself with anybody else. I really don't. That was 45 years of my life. Leslie passed away just a few years ago. But we'll get to that story at the end of things, because that's, that's called the finale part. There. I'll tell you that part later. They first met in 1974 at a New Orleans gay men's bar. I walked into this dark bar that night and I saw her on the dance floor and I just walked up to her and told her, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. I know y'all have heard Love at First Sight. Uh, You know, I knew that was my mate when I saw her. And that's what it was. She's part Belizean. Her daddy family's from Belize. She was gorgeous. That lady, that lady was gorgeous. Anyone who knew you would tell her, her nails were always gorgeous. Her hair was, I have never seen in 45 years, her hair or her nails or no eyeliner in 45 years. Now, we at Cruising Podcast don't put a lot of stock into feminine beauty ideals or binary gender standards. But as a more traditional Southerner, Juanita loves the fact that Leslie was a lady, as she puts it. I love ladies. I put up with women, but I love ladies. And and there is a difference. Uh, y'all don't know the difference? No, I feel like I know, I know what you mean. Right, there's a difference between a lady and a woman. 
Now, they're all female, but there's a big difference. There's a difference with class and no class. We all know the difference. And I taught my boys, you marry a lady. We taught our two girls, you marry a gentleman. Because they are going to love you as much as they love themselves. In this moment, Rachel and I are both thinking how neither one of us meets this definition of a lady by any means. And that's fine. We are both more than comfortable in our unladylikeness. But the language Juanita uses to express her and Leslie's identities is different than what we might use. Very different. I'm a typical boy girl. Y'all got boy girls in y'all life and y'all know how they are. So with that in mind, let's get back to their love story. Juanita and Leslie are in this dark gay men's bar when... I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. And just turn around and went back to the bar. I didn't say nothing else to all night. And the very next day, my friend arranged a court gathering and made sure she was there. And uh, I deliberately lost every game I was playing because she had gotten... There was a magazine used to be called The Hit Parade, and they would have the, the lyrics to every song that was out in it. So she had taken this magazine and went to another part of the house. So that's why I lost every game, so I could get to that other part of the house. And at that time, I had a voice. So... She was sitting there. I sit down on the floor next to her. I said, what are you doing? Well, I'm just going through these songs. I said, give me that book. Whether I knew the song, the melody, the tune or not, I sang every song in that book to her. The whole book. Every Half of the stuff I didn't even know. But I sang it. And that's what attracted her. And then two days later... She invited me to dinner. And uh, the first meal she cooked for me was chicken cacciatore. I'm black. You know, so I get in the house and she dishes up. I said, that's spaghetti and red gravy. Why didn't you just call it that? And we've been together ever since. The start of their relationship isn't entirely uncomplicated. Juanita had a husband at the time who she met in high school and married at 19. I was married, yeah. but I didn't settle down. Right, right, yeah, right. I tried. <laughs> it just didn't work. And it didn't work because, shocker, Juanita is a lesbian, something she has known from a very young age. I may have been maybe eight. And at the time, my mother lived in a housing project. And I can remember taking a quilt and throwing it across the clothesline, not realizing that it didn't hit the ground. So my friend and I got naked, and I got a clothespin and stuck it between my legs because I was always the man. Even when I played house, I was the daddy. But my sister saw me so she went and told my mother and 
I thank God for the mother that I have. She called me upstairs and she says, there is nothing wrong with sex. Just wait until you're old enough to know what you're doing. I said, yes, ma'am. But it was already here. Juanita points to her heart. And here. And then her head. Even when I had boyfriends, my mind was always there. Juanita never let men get in the way of her relationships with women. Not even her husband. No, I never stopped. Okay, okay, but you settled down. No, I didn't even settle down. There you go. But I didn't settle down. Right, 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 right. Sometimes he thought I was working. He thought I had a night job. Because, you know, he was the type of husband, that's your money, keep your money. So I, I had it hooked up, fixed up, where he thought I was working at night. And I really thought it would have worked. I really thought it would have worked. <laughs> But it didn't. And after maybe 10 years, maybe longer, because I was still with him, with girlfriends. In those 10 years, Juanita and her husband had three children. I may have been the butter, but he was the bread. And you don't leave your bread for no reason. But I saw something I wanted to spend my life with. So I became the bread for somebody else, and she was my butter. I, I can't put it no plainer than that. But first, Juanita and Leslie dated for three or four years without her husband's knowledge. He thought Leslie was my best friend. And he used to tell Leslie, could you tell your friend to give me some? And me and Leslie would laugh about it because we knew better. It wasn't going to happen. And all the while, Leslie was bonding with Juanita's kids. The kids loved her. I, I, I can't comb hair. So every morning she had to comb my daughter's hair to go to school. She brought them to school. She picked them up. And then one time my husband says, you know, you always gone on vacations without me. Yeah, I was on vacations with Leslie. Me and the kids. So when the time came, Juanita included her children in the decision to move in with Leslie. I didn't just leave. I talked to my kids. Because if you're old enough to think, you're old enough to know the truth. So I woke them up one night. I said, kids, y'all want to go stay with Miss Letty? Yes. And we moved. It's what I wanted to do. But it was their decision. I was not going to thrust my children into something that they didn't want to do. I would have stayed there if that's what they wanted to do. I would have stayed there and just kept messing around. But they wanted to go stay with her. They loved her. To this day, Juanita's children are a huge part of her life, both the three she birthed and the nieces and nephews she helped raise. Throughout our conversation, Juanita would pause to answer the phone when one of them rang or to yes, phone them hello. herself and invite them over. Yes, hello. You on your way? How close are you? The kids are all grown, some with partners and children of their own, but it seems they always make time for their mom. Have a seat. Pull up another chair. So ask him about this. Okay. Mike, Juanita's middle child, is one of four or five loved ones who stopped by while we were at Juanita's. 
Y'all, y'all mind me sitting in? No, they want you to sit in because it's so much I can't tell them. Mike remembers the early days of Juanita and Leslie's relationship. My brother and I, we were older, so we understood my mother and father just wasn't matching. But when she got with Leslie, it was like even as kids, we understood it was a match. You know, it was like a yin and yang. They balanced each other, you know. It, 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 where one was strong, the other was more soft. Or where one was so, was stronger, the other was soft. There was no true understanding of it in the beginning, because it's a child's mind. You know, uh, we knew it was a better environment, and it was a peaceful environment. You know, and and once Les came along, it was more peace. So with her children's blessing, Juanita told her husband she was leaving. I can't do this anymore. And he told me, he said, well, I knew something was wrong with you. I said, whatever you want to call it. So when I left him, my children and I left with the clothes on our back. And we got into the new car that we had purchased that he didn't know was mine. And we went home to the house that Leslie and Juanita had secretly purchased together. My oldest memory of Leslie, 79, 80. She bought me for Christmas a little Fisher-Price radio. Had the record player on it. She was in the kitchen making French toast. Right before Christmas morning, maybe Christmas Eve or something like that, making French toast in the kitchen. I had never had homemade French toast. But Leslie, that was her specialty, French toast. She was in the kitchen making French toast, and I cut the record player off. And we all were in the kitchen cooking, singing, and dancing. And the reason why it stood out, my mother was a singer and she used to perform at a club quite a bit, but it was never that kind of energy in the house up until that. Yeah, if you can understand, I mean, the energy now was different. It was a different energy. Of course, not everyone embraced Leslie and Juanita's lifestyle as wholeheartedly as Mike and his siblings. As a kid in the 70s and 80s, kids are very brutal and very right there in your face. And the words that were used, which is nowadays is very, very, very harsh and, and unused words, they were calling my mother some very rough words. That's my mama. Say it one more time. That's my mama. So inadvertently, I was fighting for gay rights before the gay movement because you, you say it one more time and we're fighting, period. That's just the way it was. And it was challenging. There were times that, you know, you, you'd actually sit there and you'd cry because other kids were saying this and saying that. But it, you know, it, it, it taught you that words don't hurt nothing. Let it bounce off your back, you know, and, and y'all don't understand it. But guess what? I'm surrounded by all this love that y'all not getting. I got it on both ends now. You know, I got two mothers I can go to whenever I'm ready. And Leslie was just as much a mother to the kids as Juanita was. And she was Mama Leslie. The kids, only time they came to me was when they needed money or they needed to be chastised. 
That is the only time they came to me. And she loved them like they were hers. She was their mother. She really was. The kids couldn't tell me Leslie did this or Leslie did that. Don't tell me that. I don't want to know. Because you're going to respect her as your constructive figure when I'm not there. She may have been a step-parent, but you're not going to treat her like that. Now, late at night, when I know they sleep, I would ask her, what happened? And then we'll discuss it, but never in front of our kids. They have never heard us argue. They've never seen us fighting. They've never seen any discontent between she and I'm not saying it wasn't there. We're human. And, and, and it's, it's a crazy thing, and I know I'm crazy. There was a lot that Juanita and Leslie kept private from their children. We never hid our lifestyle, but we never paraded it in front of them. These two boys could tell you they ain't never saw me and Leslie hold hands. Never saw us hugging and kissing. Never. You, you have to respect other people, not just yourself. So we kept the ugly side of the gay life from out of their lives. Because there's an ugly side to everything. Let me be clear, though. This privacy was not just about being gay. It taught us to be respectful. And even as a grown man, with my wife, you really won't catch me in the streets because I believe our business is our business because we were taught Our business is our business. This idea of respect is a major value for the whole family. And for Juanita, respect means modesty and chivalry, same-sex partner or not. Now let me tell you a little bit about the family side of Leslie and I. From children, once a month, Those four kids, we took to a restaurant to dine. We would give one of the boys the credit card. They would wear their suits. We would dress up. But the female in the family were not allowed to order anything. They were taught, you tell him who's paying for it, what you want on that menu, and let him do the ordering. And they were taught that from children. The boys were taught when they get in that car, they're going to open that door. Try to keep in mind, this is a black gay family in the 1980s going out to dinner in the Deep South. And Juanita herself is actually breaking stereotypical gender roles because in this scenario, she is the gentleman and Leslie is the lady. They're going to treat my lady like I treat my lady. Because my lady, they're not allowed to open a car door. Ladies don't do that. Ladies don't do that. We taught our girls, if you go out with someone and you got to put your hand on that door up, that's a let him go. Because you're you're always going to treat your lady like a lady. So Juanita refers to four kids here, two boys and two girls. 
And that's because she's including her great niece, Kanisha, whom she and Leslie raised from infancy. Leslie wanted a baby. So the high above interventor stepped in. So we picked up from the hospital at three days old and we raised her. For reasons Juanita didn't entirely address, Kanisha's biological mom needed help raising her child. And when Kanisha was still a kid, her mom passed away from breast cancer. You may have your plans, but God has his plans. And I don't fight his plans. So when we picked her up, it was meant to be. That was Leslie's baby. So Leslie and Juanita are raising four kids and also helping to raise other nieces and nephews. How y'all doing? Good evening. Good evening. Hey, baby. What's happening? Like Anthony, who also stopped by the house during our interview. He told me all the time, he said, Auntie, I adapted the way I handle myself through watching you and Leslie. Am I right? That's exactly right. And that feels so good to say that we were gay. And people have so much against gay people until you really know the life. You have a hard time respecting and accepting the life. See, these kids grew up being a part of the life. Those are products of gay environments. They were taught by two gay women how to live, how to live respectful, how to live successful. The gay life, we never thought that. We didn't see no, what everybody else called. It was just They just family. thought we were husband and wife. Or whatever. It. I, didn't, just, I didn't see how that. It just worked. Juanita and Leslie were gay parents at a time when many folks didn't believe gay people could be parents. They didn't know any other gay couples raising children. So the fact that they created this safe, stable environment and modeled a healthy relationship is a big point of pride. Most of my nieces and nephews tell me that they pattern their heterosexual life by watching my gay life. The ones that started business, you're the first member of the family that opened your own business. I had a cleaning service, transportation, and they patterned themselves after me, they saw respect, they saw love, they saw family. They also saw different parts of the country. We were vacationing on the coast, we were in New York, uh, Orlando, we were going places that that it, black folks go. in the 70s and 80s just couldn't vacation to. We would just be boom. Goal, you know, and I, that's how I got to travel was because of my auntie. This is Anthony again, Juanita's nephew. My mom couldn't afford to send us on vacation, so I went on vacation with them. I got to see places I thought I would never see with them. The family was financially able to travel like this for a very specific reason. You know, as I became a man, I understood that somebody was dealing with these finances. And that somebody was Leslie. She still would write everything down, every penny that spent. She still had a book 
with the phone number, all the credit card companies, <laughs> the, the billing date for everything. Everything was written down, and 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 when when she passed, and I had to go to the books. I was like, my God, who who wrote this up? I mean, this is an accountant genius because it was I, it was beyond my comprehension. I just put it back where it was and started from scratch. <laughs> and I know I'm spoiled rotten. She has to be so. She did everything but go to work for me. That's the only part I had to do. She did everything else. I mean, they'll tell you that. She paid the bills. She made the groceries. She did the cooking. She kept the house clean. She bought my clothes. Even after she went out, she did everything. I, I didn't know my own underwear size, my shoe size. She did it all. That's what made this like a grandmother house. You know how when you 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 just around somewhere you say, oh, grandma got food, let's stop over there. Yeah. She That's kept a meal for him. Leslie kept a lot up in here to eat because Leslie caught everything on sale and froze it. That's why. And seriously, we, we after Leslie passed, I think we found a gallon of milk that may have expired in the 80s. <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah. She buy them both. She have nobody in school, but she have it because she always thought the grandchildren would need it. So she would buy it, and she'd have it. I have a six foot long deep freezer at my house because of last. It's packed. Is I buy meat. I buy fresh meat things, and all because of Leslie. Yeah, that's why I do that. Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say, life is short and the world is wide. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on an adventure, have some fun and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise, resort, riverboat and adventure vacations so you can zipline or scuba dive knowing you're with your own community. Discover Olivia for yourself at Olivia.com or through the link in our show notes. Save $100 on your next Olivia booking with promo code CRUISING. Everyone jokes about Leslie's bulk purchases and her knack for pinching pennies, but it's because of her financial prowess that she and Juanita are eventually able to open Les Pierre's. She's a very thrifty, economical person. She knew how to save. So when the opportunity came up, and you have to remember, things were not as expensive. You rented a spot, you check the newspaper, you go to the used wholesalers, you know, and she knew how to spend money. So we were able to open the bar. But first, Juanita checked in with a friend of hers, someone experienced in the lesbian bar business. So... I went and talked with Charlene Schneider, who was my friend at the time, and we just sat and put it all together. Apparently, before opening her own bar, Juanita had no qualms about hanging out in the stereotypically white lesbian bars. If you gay, you gay, and you went to the bar. Right. Because I would go to Dusty's, Charlene's, Every damn female boy, and back then we had Cyril Dove. We had quite a few female bars downtown. 
And we went to all of them together. Where I was going to meet women at. Yeah. Well, that wasn't... It was not uncomfortable. But there's obviously a difference between not being uncomfortable in a space and feeling entirely at home. I, I decided we needed a place of our own. And Charlene thought that was a great idea. She just guided me along with everything I needed to do. Because whenever you go into business, you need to connect with somebody that has been there. And, and she was the one mentored me on how to go about opening the bar. Juanita and Leslie found a spot in Marigny, the first suburb of New Orleans known for its colorful, old-fashioned architecture. And the rent was reasonable. So we had someone build us a bar, and we started just buying stuff, buying stuff, buying stuff. So maybe 30000 we spent. But it was worth it. I would do it all over again. No one can quite remember the exact date Les Pierre's opened. Not Juanita, not Mike, not anyone on the internet. But we can guess, based off of other stories and dates we've heard, that Les Pierre's first opened its doors around 1980. The name originated from her first name, Les, and my last name, Pierre. So it was Les Pierre's. And uh, it gave people of color somewhere to go. And then everybody else started coming. Juanita herself was having trouble remembering exactly what the inside of the bar looked like. But she made sure to call someone over to the house that could. Can you break away? Can you hear me? Because I need you. Come by yourself. Because you'll bring the whole world thing, and I need oh to be God. picked up off the floor. I'm telling you, I was coming in the door to cut her head. I need to say, can I say that? Because she'll call me and tell me it's emergency, and I get here, and she just won't sit down and talk. This is Imelda, a family friend who arrived shortly after receiving Juanita's urgent, cryptic call. But today I was having a lot of fun, and when she say come, that's how I feel about this person. And once she got over the stress of the phone call... Imelda tells us more about the bar. I could see it like it was yesterday. It was kind of a secluded VIP club, you know. They had these two little doors in the front, but they had the one VIP door on the side. They had maybe two or three tables right between the two doors. Yeah. As you're walking in to the left-hand side is where the show stage was. And the show stage was decorated for the week. On this stage, you would find drag performances each week. Sometimes drag queens, often drag kings. Although they didn't call them drag kings at the time. Well, that's what y'all call it now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or women doing drag. Yeah. We called them female impersonators. Well, yeah. male impersonators back then. Their resident drag troupe was called La Femme. And Juanita was one of the performers. You had to audition to get in love with him. You just couldn't come and say, I'm going to do a number. It didn't work like that. We had rehearsals, and I mean hard rehearsals. We had a makeup artist. We had a spotlight guy that followed us to all our shows. Every member of La Femme had their own person, a celebrity, that they copied. I only did Luther Vandross. I can't feel myself. I don't want nobody else to ever love me. 
that we had one little girl did Frank Sinatra. She was awesome. And, and that's all she did was Frank Sinatra. And they loved her. And the way you look tonight. And the finale of a La Femme performance was always a drag queen number, a female impersonator. Our final number was always one of the boy girls doing a female number. He's leaving, leaving. Oh, we do Gladys Knight, we do Shirelles, but you had to, one of us had to come out as we said in drag. Because putting on a gown and a wig was drag for us. But that was always our final number. According to Imelda, Les Pierre's was known for having an older crowd. I might tell one of my friends in my age, we going about that shit, honey, old people over there. But what they didn't know is we was having a ball. But Saturdays during the day attracted a very different demographic. That was my children's time. They went to the ball with us on a Saturday to clean up. And they would help us with the trash, help us set up the bar. We would go in on Saturday mornings and... You know, my mother would give us a chance to, you know, act like we were adults. We got to sit at the bar drinking a root beer, cold drinks, Coca-Cola. We got to turn on the, 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 the DJ equipment, the jukebox. We, we get to shoot pool. It was a lot of things that made us feel like adults while they were restocking and we were doing the cleaning from the week's party and preparing for whatever Saturday and Sunday would bring about. That was our bar, the family bar. So they looked forward to Saturdays. And Saturday night was the one night a week you would find Juanita at the bar. Every other day of the week, Leslie ran Les Piers because Juanita had another full-time job in law enforcement. That was a busiest night. So I would work the bar every Saturday night, And I would go back on Sunday mornings. Despite working a 40-plus hour week, followed by an all-night shift at the bar on Saturday, Juanita would show up at church on Sunday morning without fail. Sundays, I would come in from the bar, 5, 6 in the morning, change clothes for mass. Because every Sunday morning, as long as you are breathing, you went to church. Leslie had a very strict rule. If you didn't get your clothes together on a Saturday, you were going wrinkled, dirty, but you were going to church. But I would always wind up in the baby's room, sleeping in church. You know how they have the little petition when they put the crying babies? Yeah, I know. And and, and I'd be up there sleeping back. I'd be up all night at the bar. But we went to church every Sunday. Juanita's established career in law enforcement came with some perks beyond just a steady paycheck. I would get a call, you know, police out tonight because they would read the bars. I'm sure a lot of them have told you that. And I would get a call. Okay, they read the bar tonight. It was about underage being in the bars, really. That's mainly what it was about. So I always had an inside warning. They read in the bars tonight. So what would you do when you got that morning? I'd make sure everybody in there was of age. Because I didn't like underage people in the bar. They didn't work for me. And speaking of underage, 
I'm telling you, I had to sneak. You know, I had to sneak past her. That's Imelda again. She was a teenager when Les Pierre's first opened, but that didn't entirely stop her. I was too young to be in the clubs at the time, <laughs> so I was sneaking. Right? Hey, y'all to leave my boy. And uh, we knew she wasn't there. You know, we the end, we got the inside scoop, so we would go. And they'll tell us, we need to come in. So we had to ease out the other door when she was coming in the other door until we made 18. Imelda wasn't able to hide her age because she'd known Juanita her whole life. They all lived in the same neighborhood. I've always been her little sister. You know, I've always been, we always been, we've been close. She's been knowing me way before the gayness. In the community, she knew when I was a baby. Growing up around Juanita and Leslie was hugely important for Imelda. Seeing how they were living, it gave me... The ability to say, yeah, I could live, you know, I, I like it. I like, yeah, I like being gay. And I was tossing it with, is it right or wrong? And they had a closeness that I thought I could find in a mate, you know. So it was a, a really good thing that God put her in my life to see them enjoy the gay life. And it was safe. It was a safe place. Kind of surprisingly, Juanita is not too keen on the idea of being a gay role model. I didn't want to be that type of influence on her. I never want to be known for influencing someone to be gay. I really didn't. But Imelda disagrees. She would have been gay with or without Juanita and Leslie. They just showed her it was possible to be gay and happy and successful. I come from one of the worst projects in the world. So being and watching where they are, you know, and what they were doing, it enthused me. You know, I went and went to school, got a degree in childcare, did everything I had to do because I was forced to not go in the barrooms. She wouldn't let me come in the barrooms, so I had to go to school. I had to do what I had to do. On one school break, Amelda was finally old enough to get into the bar. It was amazing, Kawana. The first time I was able to go in and actually sit, I never was a person to sit at the bar, but to sit in the middle by one of them high chairs. I think I went in there, Kawana, I had my little stifling <laughs> in my pocket, and I'm sitting there, and I'm a good-looking stud at the time, right? I'm, I'm built for this thing, boy, looking. And then she had these little nuts. Leslie had these little mixed nuts she was sitting at the table, and I'd sit there and roll them nuts in my hand, and Kawana pop them nuts like I was... Al Capone, somebody, baby. Hot shit. Yeah, yeah, I was the shit. I was the shit. I wasn't. I was, I was pretty good, you know. But by the time she graduated, Les Pierre's had closed. Again, no one's entirely sure what year the bar closed, but it's probably around when the building was sold in 1985. The building got sold, and I wasn't going to pay the price they were asking. Yeah. So we shut it down. Did you have big sort of events leading up to the, the closing? Was there a big last? No, we just closed down one day. No, you're, you're kidding. No, we just closed down one day. It just happened one weekend. It just, we, we just didn't tell them. They sat in the building, we got the close. We just didn't tell them. We just bought a U-Haul and we just kept moving. I don't know, it was painful for us. Yeah, because the children loved it. It was very painful. First off, that meant you was home every Friday night, Saturday night, <laughs> Sunday night. That's first off. So knowing that you would be home every night, now that was very painful. But not only that, it, it took away our Saturday mornings. Yeah, they enjoyed this. And they, they, the Saturday mornings, was we couldn't wait to get up, even though it was working. We couldn't no, wait to get up. 
Even outside of their little family, the bar's closing left a gaping hole in the New Orleans Black lesbian community. We still get people asking us to reopen. They still asking us. Even ask her children about it. And they still asking me, even the vendors, Miss Juanita, you want to open up another one? No, thank you. Been there, done that, I'm done with it. That's a closed chapter in my life. This take-what-life-throws-at-you-and-move-on kind of attitude is typical of Juanita. And according to Mike, typical of many New Orleanians. Well, the dynamics of New Orleans is something different than the people in New Orleans. In New Orleans, it happens. Just move on. It was like, okay, this is the new life. What happened yesterday is yesterday. We're not going to worry about that. We're just going to. Focus on the road up ahead. As I always said, you ain't crying over no spilled milk. What happens is what happened, and you move on. This outlook has gotten the family through a loss far more astronomical than the closing of Les Pierre's. Oh, baby, you're going to love the finale. I have a feeling I'm actually going to love the finale. Yes, you are. (laughs) I loved it. Yes, you are. It's a tearjerker. She took a fall in 05. Leslie took a fall before Katrina. The same year, Katrina. In early 2005, Leslie slipped and fell on the two steps leading from the kitchen to the bathroom. When Leslie fell, I took her to the emergency room. But according to Juanita, at the emergency room, they really just looked for broken bones. And all Leslie's bones were perfectly intact. After I took her to the emergency room... And she had no broken bones. It was a little little bump on her leg and she fell and, you know, minor stuff. At first, it seemed like Leslie really was fine. She went to work. She went to work that night because she used to work the night shift. When she got off from work, 7.30 that morning, she drove up almost in the house because her legs were discolored. They were blue. So all I did was made a phone call, and I called the police department. I called my friend on the police department. I said, I got to get Leslie to the hospital right now. She said, run every red light, and I'll meet you on the bridge. So we got up from here to New Orleans East in maybe seven minutes. I ran every red light. And that's when Dr. Satterai took over. And he came and he told me, he said, her body is full of blood clots. We got to blow them out. So Leslie was rushed into emergency surgery. She had so many blood clots, there was a big chance she wouldn't survive. The night she had surgery, the hospital, it was so packed. Every black gay woman in the city of New Orleans was in that hospital that night. They were praying, they were singing. They, they were there. We all was in the waiting room. It was packed. The hospital even came and told me, look, some of these people have to go. It was just so many. Leslie made it through surgery that night, but they couldn't get all of the blood clots in the amount of time they could keep her under anesthesia. So the next day, Leslie went back into surgery, and ultimately, the doctors had to amputate Leslie's leg. And then... The kidneys shut down, and they took her to the, what you call the big machine, the 
kidney machine. The dialysis machine. But she didn't give up, and I didn't give up. I, I cannot tolerate giving up. You fight till you drop. That's how I feel. And for two days, she kept telling me, my other leg don't feel right. My other leg don't feel right. Till they had to amputate the other one. But we were all right with it. I had her. And she stayed in the hospital three months. And I stayed in the hospital three months. Her doctors made sure that she got hospital suites so that they could put a bed in there for me. Because I lived in the hospital three months with her. But the gay community and family, or should I say family and the gay community, they were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My family worked, so the gay community made sure I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Those that live close to the hospital, I had keys to their houses so I could go and shower. For those three months, it seemed Leslie was teetering on the edge of life and death. And this is where my belief, my faith, and my strength kicked in. It may sound crazy to some people, but it was true. I remember it was five in the morning, and I went sat on the balcony at the hospital to smoke. And I'm sitting up there angry, and I remember saying, how could you, God? How could you take her up and pull her down? Take her up and pull her down. Whatever you're going to do, do it. And I can, I, I, I look up, and daybreak was coming in. And the sky was a gorgeous pink and blue. And I remember that voice telling me, who do you think you are? And I raised my hands up. I said, I'm sorry, God. Whatever you want to do, you do. Up she was. Came home. Stayed home a lovely while that time. I had to surrender to another being. And I had to realize he was at work, not me. So she came home after that one, and I was able to keep her. She was in and out of the hospital. But she was here. When she went in the hospital, uh, was it March? Yeah. March of 05, her medical plight started. And it lasted real heavy up until Katrina. Two days before Katrina, she was in the hospital again. We thought she had another heart attack. And as God is my witness, I said, that, baby, they let you out of here. And we gone. I'm going to go home tonight, and I'm going to watch the news. And tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, they let you out of here. We gone. And I think you called me Saturday morning and said she's been discharged. I said, all right, well, I already packed y'all some bags. Let's go. And I came over here, and we all left together. Less than 48 hours later, Hurricane Katrina would make landfall in Louisiana as a Category 5 storm killing over 1,000 New Orleanians, hundreds of whom were trapped in hospitals without power. 
but Leslie and her family made it safely to Pensacola, Florida, where relatives quickly hooked them up with housing and jobs. They stayed in Pensacola for about a year while back in New Orleans, the family home was being rebuilt, along with the rest of the city. It took a while for this house to be gutted and redone, and, and it couldn't just be gutted and redone. It had to be converted to wheelchair accessible yes. and handicapped accessible. Before Katrina hit, they had already started converting the house for accessibility. Certain changes had to be made, doors had to be widened. And now much of that work had to be redone in addition to all of the other repairs needed. It was an uh, uh, adapting to a new life because it wasn't just coming back. It was coming back with medical needs. When Leslie and Juanita finally returned to New Orleans from Pensacola, something in Leslie changed. All of a sudden, she just snapped, you know, and it, it was like, how did, you know, how did you go into that snap like that? She just snapped back, you know, and and, and she went from, I, I guess, the weakest part of her life to what I call the strongest part of her life. That's when her strength and resilience showed it, because you went from having this normal life to a double amputee, heart problems, kidney problems, nerve problems, and you bounced back, you started to live again. She was driving on her own. She was even working. She was cooking. She was doing it all At the same on her own. Before she had all. Yeah, she was, she, she was doing it all. After Les Pierre's closed, Leslie had gone back to school to begin a career in respiratory therapy care. And when she lost her legs, she was at a nursing home in the respiratory department. And they offered her a receptionist job at the nursing home. Just four hours a day. It didn't make no sense to me, but I let her go because it got her out of the house and around other people. And by the time she went to work, it was almost time she was coming back. So I didn't mind that, but she worked up until the day she couldn't. And because of her education and background in medical care, Leslie was able to advocate for herself in a way most other patients cannot. Every time Leslie went in the hospital, she would tell them because she was, she was on point with everything. She could tell them what medicines, what to do. This is Mike's wife, Kiwanya. <laughs> you remember the night they called her when they had to put on the, the respirator? Respirator. She told them. She told them, I need to go and she the said, respirator right now. And she said, don't worry, I'm okay. But I need it right now. And they had to put on the respirator to save her life. Twice that happened. And she would tell them, she, she knew her medical. She knew her, She knew medical. She just knew it. And she would tell them what to do and how to do it. Perhaps because of Leslie's own diligence and medical knowledge, she would go on to live another 15 years after her 2005 fall. But Leslie would spend a chunk of that time in and out of the hospital. It wasn't just the one surgery. It was quite a few surgeries. Because she also started having heart attacks. She had a heart attack in there. You know, so when she went in the hospital, she stayed there for a while. And through the very end... Leslie never stopped being a lady, at least by Juanita's definition. Here's Mike's wife, Kiwanya, again. Every single time she went to the hospital, somebody had to come here and get her nail kit. Because you cannot catch her with a chipped nail. 
Uh, out yeah, of not, place. None, that's right. She always she was a girly girl. And she always wanted to look her best. Always At all best. times, up until all the time. last day. You hear what I'm telling you? Mm. Even when she was hurt, she, was, she still kept everything yeah. done. After all this time, Leslie still felt like the dazzling lady Juanita had spotted in that dark bar all those years ago. The lady to whom Juanita had declared, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. Her last hospital stay, she knew that her time had come. She knew it. She told it to all of us. She said, if I go in the hospital this time, the only way I come out is in the body bag. I said, oh, girl, stop playing. And I can remember the day before she went in the hospital. I was tending to her wounds, and she kept looking at the door. And I said, babe, what you looking at? She said, I don't want to tell you because I know how scary you can be. I said, girl, I'm not going to be scared. Tell me. She said, I'm looking at God. I said, well, how you know it's God? She said, because of the light around him. And how beautiful that white robe is he got on. I said, is he talking to you? She said, yeah. I said, what are you saying? It's your time. But Leslie made it through that night and then through surgery the next day. Her second surgery in two days, right? Second surgery in two days. She had started tunneling with infection. And so they had to gut her. And that's when I let go. When I saw how they had gut her. I knew that I had to let her go. She was in some pain. Mm. And she didn't want she never all, complained. Never complained. She didn't want, never she didn't want all them drugs and stuff. She, she sure did. did. She would never. suffer through that pain. But during that last hospital stay, when Leslie was suffering most, Mike and Imelda did find one thing to ease her pain. You know, she would call me Mikey. Say, Mikey, my back. My backside is sore. She had she had started getting bed sores on her, and I don't know what Manny Melda was thinking about, but we picked her up with the sheets. We pick up with the sheets, and we were swinging her, <laughs> and it was comforting to her. And she fall asleep while we swinging her. Yeah, we put her down. And she get down for a minute, and then she'll go. She'll, she'll open one eye and twirl her fingers, like raise her back up and swing her some more. Imelda and I did that the whole day, and she did say to me at some point, "Oh, this feels so good." And I was like, "It may feel good to you, but it's brutal on us." <laughs> you can still hear the love in Mike's voice for his mama, Leslie. And apparently, Leslie always had a soft spot for him, too. Mike was like her favorite. Mike got a little murder in his house, I tell you. <laughs> he got a little murder in his house. And that was when we was young. Even when she was in the wheelchair, she would only feel safe if I picked her up. Pulling the wheelchair up a flight of steps, you know, there, there was a time where you actually had to pull a manual wheelchair up steps. Yeah. She would only allow me to do it. 
that she needed moving from the wheelchair to the bed before she learned how to move on her own. She would want me to do it, you know, and, and here I was at the end picking her up again. So that that she did feel comfortable with me doing. And that was my finals with her. You know, we, we swung her the whole day. She went to surgery the second day, made it through surgery, and the doctor told me, go home, get you some rest. We're going to keep us asleep. My grandbaby, Jeremy, wanted to stay all night. And I said, no, baby, you don't have to stay all night. I'm coming. He said, how could you do that to me? He said, I love her. She's my grandmother. I said, okay, baby, stay all night. So Jeremy stayed and Juanita left. Or she at least tried to. By the time I got in my driveway, they called me back. And she held on till I got there. And the room was packed. And when I got to the bed, I told her, I said, I love you. And she opened her eyes and she said, and I said, baby, if you're tired and you're ready to go, I'm going to be all right. Go ahead. And she took her last breath. But I knew it was time to let her go. She had suffered enough. She only stayed to make sure I was all right. And the minute, I wish I could take the words back today, but I can't. Because the minute I told her, I'm going to be all right, she took her last breath. Throughout all, all of her sickness over the years, one thing she would always say, take care of Nita when I'm gone. Now here she is laying in the bed, and all she's worrying about is take care of Nita when I'm gone. Even my doctors cried because they were there, and... uh he said, I've never seen a love like this in my life. He said, you did everything you could to keep her here. And he started crying. They go, tall, fine, doctor. I said, it's, it's okay. Leslie passed on her 66th birthday, January 11th, 2020. In very classic Leslie fashion, she had left careful instructions for what she wanted when she was gone. Leslie come from a line of people that donate their bodies to science. She would tell me, I don't want all those people looking down at me. Leslie told me, point blank, don't put all my money in the ground. Well, yes, she did say that. That is what Leslie she told did say me. That. That's a waste of money. She said, Nita going to try and do all this and that, but I have already written what I she want done. She, she had it written down. She everything. said, this is where it's at. Go get it. Don't let her put all my money in the ground. So she signed her body to science long before she passed. And she left letters to the boys, to the kids, telling them, this is the way I want this done. A balloon release, nothing big. She wanted family, nothing extravagant. And whatever you do, don't spend a lot of money. <laughs> to her, that was frivolous spending. And she wrote it down for me. That was my instructions. But I know she got her balloons. Because 
Oh, Lord, it was a lot of us. And all of us had one balloon, a lot of us. And, and it was in January, so you know the wind was blowing. But all those balloons from a circle of people, I remember how everybody was gasping because all those balloons from different places, the balloons just gathered together like a bunch, like a man at a carnival holding them. And they went up in the sky just like that. Every one of them, every one of them. And with the wind blowing, so I know she got them. I know she appreciated it. Leslie's been gone for almost four years now, but she's far from forgotten. I have a life-size cutout of her in my garage. Cutout? Supposed to a, a cardboard life-size. We had it done for her memorial, a cardboard life-size of her, just her upper portions. It was a family a friend. friend. Of mine does that. That's right, it was for all the funerals that won't cut out. And he knew her. He personally did. And he said, I'm going to do two of these for y'all. Brian did it on his own. He did it. He did it and it, it was, looked just like her. It looked just like her. Give me your best picture, and I have it for y'all for the memorial. And every day I go in my garage when I'm home, she she's standing it. right there watching me, and it's like, Wherever I go in that garage, she's looking right at me. And I, <laughs> and I talk to her yeah. through that cutout. Every time I go in the garage, I still talk to her through that cutout. For Juanita, a lot is different about life without Leslie, but she moves forward. I think I'm doing good to say I've had three strokes. The only one that has really messed me up was the eye stroke. But God was gracious enough to leave me with a good eye that I can still see. So I just deal with it. You just deal with stuff and keep moving. So I, I manage. I will tell you what she told me. She said, you're not meant to be alone. I wish you as much happiness in your next relationship than you had in this one. How do you love somebody that much? So I get through it. I, 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 I get through it because that's what she would want me to do. Honestly speaking, I would hope that someone else would make me as happy. I would hope, am I spoiled? She got me spoiled a lot. Cruising is independently reported and produced by a small but mighty team of three. Story producer and social media manager Rachel Karp, line producer and resident road trip driver Jen McGinnity, and story producer and audio engineer me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. Thank you to our sponsors, Olivia Travel and Honda. You can find us at our website, cruisingpod.com, on social media at cruisingpod, and at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Listen to Cruising wherever you get your podcasts. 